Mark 11, starting at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? Then they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for free figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit 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 from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay. We're looking at this story today, but we're doing a lot today. I'm trying to fit a lot in there and try and be short as well like I normally am. Um, We're doing an overview of everything we've learned from Mark. We're looking at what's happening through Jesus the King. 
We're looking at the nature of his disciples and what it is to be a Christian. We're going to look at the importance of prayer. And then we're going to look at the horror, the horror of legalism in the church. That sounds a surprising way to finish, isn't it? Um, okay, I'm going to pray first. Though. Father, we thank you for your word. It stands as a pillar of strength in our minds and hearts and throughout this world. It is your authority, it is your truth, and we pray that you would bring the power of that authority and truth to us uh, today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I've told this story a lot of times as we've been doing the book of Mark, but I'm going to tell it once more at least. And that is, we noticed in the first uh, chapter of Mark that Mark came along and he said, the kingdom of God is near. He was the king. And then we asked that question, what sort of king is he? It's a question, if I proclaim myself king, you'd say, king over what? Would you not? And we found that Jesus was the king over the powers of darkness. He cast out demons. He was, he was the king over bodies. He healed. He raised someone from the dead. He was the king over life and death. He was the king over the law. He was the king over creation. He spoke and the waves and the wind stopped. Basically, he was the king of everything. And that's when we got to chapter 8. And we had this picture. And then Penny drops for dear old Peter. And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I know who you are. And then immediately Jesus changed the whole story and started to tell them. From, he's told them three times up to now, the Son of Man must suffer and die in Jerusalem and three days he'll rise from the dead. And Peter took him aside. Then they had that bit of a thing, get behind me, Satan. Remember that part of the story. And then from then on, the story has sort of switched from this incredibly powerful king to this king who is going to be revealed in weakness and also have followers, disciples, who are also going to be revealed in weakness. Yes, he's the king of all, and yet he is the one who must die on the cross. And then disciples are told, you must take up your cross. In other words, die to yourself as well. Lose your life for the gospel. We had the story, sorry, I'm giving a big overview here, but I hope this makes some sense to you. They had the transfiguration. You think, there's the Son of God revealed in all his glory and he's bright and shining. And then he's talking about his exodus. He has to go to his death. Um, you had a boy with an evil spirit and the weakness of the disciples was shown because they couldn't cast him out because they weren't living by faith. They weren't acting by faith. They weren't praying. They weren't trusting God. In other words, they were looking to their own strength and their own methods, not to God. And throughout this time, Jesus has said, You've got to be like a little child. You've got to receive the kingdom of God. You can't earn it yourself. You can't do it yourself. And then last week we had the rich young ruler. He had lots of money. And he thought he could, you know, basically buy his way with obedience. And because rich people have power over their lives, so they think they have the power to be saved. And we found out he was in big trouble. He couldn't get into heaven. You see, what Jesus is teaching, if you're going to be my disciple and you think that your strength, your riches, your power will help you to get to heaven, you're wrong. You actually need to come as a weak child. 
And then in the passage we didn't do last week, because I've preached on it recently, not that long ago anyway, we found out that Jesus uh, had, he, he came as the Son of Man not to be served, but to serve. He is the King of all who comes as a servant. And then he says, not so with you, you're not to lord it over people, you're to be servants too. Right, what do we get from all that? Christianity is not about strength. How good am I? It's not that. It's not something you earn through being strong in any way of this world. And there is no potential we have, whether it's through our personality, our popularity, our our money, our power, our influence or anything else, that will get us to heaven. We receive the kingdom of heaven as a child. So in light of all this, Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. So he's been talking for the last three chapters. I'm heading towards Jerusalem and there is where it's all going to happen. And he enters Jerusalem and he's the Messiah and he's the king. And they go and find that cult. Yep. And he rides in and it's in answer to a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion's Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's entering the holy city, the royal city, Jerusalem, righteous and victorious. That's what they wanted to hear, lowly. Can you see what I'm saying about the lead up to what Jesus is like? Yes, he's the king who comes lowly as a servant. The difference is the perspective of God and the perspective of men. You have in mind the things of God or the things of men. Which do you have? That's what uh, Jesus had said many times. And so, again, if we said, what is the problem? And you ask the Jews, what is your problem in this world? They would say, Romans, heavy taxes, sickness, hardship, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and so when they saw Jesus with the miracles he was doing and they saw him riding into Jerusalem, they're thinking, here we go. End of all the problems. Now, it, it's really interesting when you read the accounts of this as he's riding in, you kind of think, where did all the people come? The people were just there. It's like this spontaneous worship comes. There was no flyers up on the walls or on the telephone posts saying, Come to Jesus' entry. It wasn't any of that. It's just like the people were there. It's the main road in, basically. And and suddenly, as he comes riding on a donkey, there's this kind of uprising of praise within people's hearts. So much so that people start tearing limbs off palm trees and stuff and putting them on the ground and even taking off their coats for a donkey to walk over. That's dangerous. Okay, what's going to happen to my coat? Uh, you see, but such an outpouring of praise, it, it's like it came from, it's a spontaneous jubilee, uh, jubilation and honour and respect in this large crowd. And Luke tells us, the Pharisees this time said to Jesus, tell your disciples to stop praising you. That's not appropriate. And he said, if they were to stop praising me, these rocks would start praising. Isn't that incredible? In other words, we're not talking about an organised worship service here. We're talking about a spontaneous outbreak of praise, unusually, as the king came into Jerusalem and they're shouting, 
Hosanna, which in the old times in the Old Testament meant save us, Lord save us. But later on it came to be hallelujah, praise, praise be to God. And this also, there's a second prophecy, which is it comes when um, the father of the father of Judah. What's his name again? Yeah, I remember. I'm just testing you. Um, <laughs> Abraham's son was Isaac. Yes. Isaac, remember, he blessed his children at just be, not long before he died. And he said of Judah particularly, now Judah's important because Jesus comes in the line of Judah. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches down, like a lioness who dares rouse him. Now we know Jesus is called the lion in the tribe of Judah. The scepter, that's the the thing that the king holds, which means I have authority, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he... Whom it, to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The obedience of the nations shall be his. He will be obedient for them. And he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. That's a really interesting picture. The king will come. He's going to be riding into Jerusalem. He's going to tie up his donkey to a grapevine and he's going to wash his robes in the wine and the blood. Isn't that interesting? We'll come back to that. But he's going to, it's going to be an incredible moment of when this king arrives. Now, I'll say it again. The Jews hoped that this one, with all the miracles we've seen, would free, him, free them from the oppression of the Romans. That's not necessarily what the crowd were looking for in this spontaneous worship, but there's kind of a general expectation, including from the disciples, that that's what was going to happen. He was going to defeat the enemies, fix everything up. He was, a good king does that. Defeats the enemies, sits on the throne, brings peace and prosperity. That's what they wanted. But you kind of get this big build-up. I don't know if you noticed it. They're all coming into Jerusalem. There's this worship. They're putting down the things... And then Jesus walks in and him and the 12 disciples walk into the temple. It's like, where did the crowd go? What happened there? There's a big build-up. And then he looks around the crowd, looks around the temple and it's late in the day and he goes home to camp or camp on the opposite hill at Bethany. Here's the temple mount, if you could picture this, the deep valley and then up here is the Mount of Olives and Bethany. And, and as you're coming down this, you're looking straight over the Temple Mount. You see the temple. That becomes important for this story. Now, you might think, well, he just had a look around, a bit of, you know, picked up some tourist pamphlets and then went home. But actually, we know that there was something more going on in Jesus' heart. When he looked around the temple, he wasn't happy. And John tells us when he went home, he went home to do one thing. Do you know what it was? To braid a whip. All right? That's, what, that's a bit frightening, isn't it? You know, people say God's not angry. No, no, no. God is slow to anger. His anger is measured. It is careful and it is always righteous anger. Jesus went home and he braided a whip. Because what he saw angered him and righteously angered him. It was his father's house. By the way, 
It's his house, the son of the father. What was that house meant for? What was the point of the temple? It was where people met with God. There was a sacrifice there, but the sacrifice was to take away your sins so that what? You could meet with God, so that you could pray. Do you understand? Why did Jesus die for our sins? So that we could know God. So that we could know the Father. And he looked around this place and he saw a mess. Stuff being sold and bought. Where people were supposed to be, where it was supposed to be quiet time of prayer, there they were uh, making money from the things of God. You see, but I'll just say it again. The point of life, the meaning of life for us is to know God. Okay? It's not just to come to church. Right? Get that? To know God. And what Jesus did restored us to a relationship with God from the biggest problem we had. And what was that biggest problem? Sin. Okay. It separated us from God because basically sin is us rebelling against God and hating his ways, right? So that's our biggest problem. And Jesus came to take our sins to restore us. So what the people thought was our biggest problem is the Romans. And as I said to you, if I would say to you, what's your biggest problem in life? If you say that to people, very rarely will they say my sin. Okay, they'll say something else. If you say, what is the biggest problem with the church? Well, they'll have a nice list of things. And I'll come back to that as well when we deal about the, the pain and the horror of religion. But So when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he was dealing with the heart and the foundation of the problem of humanity that it had from the beginning, sin. Do you understand that? Yep. And into the great city he comes. But on the way, there's this strange thing because he, he's hungry and he sees a fig tree... Nice green leafy fig tree. It's not the right season, but you know how they bush out. And he goes up to this fig tree and there's no figs on it. And then he curses it. We know what happens the next day. It's dead. But we'll come back to that. You see, this fig tree, just imagine, you're coming down the hill. You're looking over the temple mount. The temple is overlaid with gold. If you've ever seen it, something like that, it, it is shiny. It is reflective, it is beautiful, it is brilliant. Inside, and there's the wall of Jerusalem, the great city of God, this incredible place of worship. She's nice and green and bushy, but there's no fruit on it. Do you understand? The magnificence is actually hollow and empty. It's a sham. It's hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy uh, you see, when it came to the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, hypocrisy in that day meant a mask. It's like the actor's mask. You remember those ones on a stick, they hold up their face? Right. Yeah, right. You're allowed to say yeah out loud. That's okay. And, 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 but, that, but if you put on a mask, that's not who you are. Do you understand? When Bruce Willis plays um, whatever that bloke's name is in Die Hard, do you know that's not really Bruce Willis? It's just a fake. It's a sham. He doesn't really jump out of buildings and fall down lift shafts and survive. That's not really Bruce Willis. See, it's a fake. It's a sham. It's an acting. Okay? So what, what you could see of the temple and what Jesus had exposed so many times is you've got it wrong. You're a fake. You've got all these little laws and you're so far from God. 
You're standing up again to pray and you're praying to yourself. You're not praying to God. It's all a fake. It's a lie. And so Jesus goes into this lie and he, I don't know, this would be a frightening scene if you'd seen it, but he goes in in the morning and he stays there all day after this, by the way, and he turns over their tables and he kicks them out and he has a whip. What a scene. And it says he wouldn't even let people carry stuff through anymore. Why? Because it's the house of prayer. You don't want to interrupt it with people carting their furniture through or anything else. Do you understand? I want this to be, he said, my father's house. This is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Imagine people making money from their relationship with God. In that day. Imagine in this day people making money from being the church. Is that a horrible sin? I think we should just say it is. It's a great evil, isn't it? Profiting from people's faith. So he came into this city and he came to go straight to the heart of the problem the sin of the people. And he came to, firstly, in this case, expose it for what it is and then, at the cross, defeat it once and for all. Jesus loved his father's house. And if you know the story of Jesus' life, you'll know this. He loved to pray. He prayed all the time, didn't he? To restore prayer. Huge part of Jesus' mission, if you can understand that. And when he died on the cross... What did he say he was doing? I'll tear down that temple and in three days I'll build a new one. But the new one's not going to be like the old one. The old one was still there for a few years. This new temple, this new meeting place, this would be his body, which would be himself, so that all prayer is now in Jesus' name. We can pray to God through Jesus and God hears us. Because I tell you, if you are not in Christ and you start praying... God does not hear your prayers. They are sin to him. Unless we pray by faith through Christ, prayers are nothing. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? It's just a fact. The only way we can pray is through Jesus and through faith in him. So he drives out the evil out of this old house and he's going to build a new temple, a new meeting place, which is him. And the chief priests and everybody immediately look for a way to destroy him. And you know that that happened within a week. When they left the city that night, the fig tree had withered right to its roots. It had just turned to nothing. The old temple was about to wither away and be shown for what it was because Jesus had replaced it. And then he he says to them, when they question him about it, have faith in God, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in what he says, it will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay. Now, one of the things in the Greek is, he says this, 
Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, the this is a, it's what's called a demonstrative, if you know English well. He wasn't just talking, if anyone says to a mountain, go and be thrown into the sea. He says, if anyone says to this mountain, where's he standing? We're looking at the temple mount. If anyone says to this, be thrown into the sea, it will happen. It'll be replaced. The old religion I'm about to replace with the new truth in myself, who is Christ. I'm going to give you new prayer, a new house of prayer, a new tabernacle. That's what in the, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He became the meeting place between us and God. And there's going to be this incredible miracle, he says. I will forgive your sins and you'll be able to forgive one another. How? Well, he's going to wash his robes in wine, in blood. And then he's going to give us those robes. Remember we, we, the Bible talks about robes of righteousness. We've been doing the Revelation. Where do they come from? Do we go and wash them ourselves? We are given robes of righteousness, which is his perfection given to us. If we were to try and wash our clothes and get them white and holy, we would be like the hypocrites, like the Pharisees, like the rest, with our own little laws and we'd have this little stain here and we'd scrub it and scrub it and scrub it and, and we might end up with one little tiny, about as big as a full stop, little tiny white patch in our horribly soiled shirts, our clothes, our robes. Do you understand? We can't do it. We are given robes of righteousness so that we can do what? So that we can pray, so that we can know him. Restored in a relationship with God. Okay, now I wanted to talk about this warning of religion. And so if you're getting a bit tired, it's time to wake up now. We're going to hear this bit. Because this is a huge problem in the church when it starts to inject religion and self-righteousness back into the people of God. When we start to replace, again, when we start to see that the problems in our life as Christians are sin, are not sin, sorry, are something else. We don't have enough freedom. We haven't got the church right. We haven't done this. We haven't done that. And we start to live in a way where we hide the real problem, where we become Pharisees, where we become hypocrites. And we try to make, as a a result of that, other little things the problem. What's the problem with the church? It's this or it's that. Actually, the problem with the church is sin. Whose sin? Well, I'm going to point at you. Yours. You can point at me and say mine. It is. What's the problem with the church? Our sin. What do we need? Jesus. Do you understand that? Because otherwise, if we don't see that, we start to deny... Sorry, deny. We start to desire the glory of the world. We look elsewhere for salvation. And the other thing we do is, like the Pharisees, is we make little obedience the big issue. Years ago, um, we were in a church and I started getting angry emails from a bloke who was saying, your elders, their character is terrible and the things that happen in your church are disgusting. Disgraceful was the word he used. Right? Those emails. Angry emails. Turns out this man was in incestuous relationships and he, was, and he had a big porn thing going on. Right? 
And he's, a, he's attacking the church for its little things, order and stuff like that. Do you understand? It's, 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 if I had a pastoral whinge, it's people who have addictive sin are always bagging the church. Why? Because they, they, their addictions cause them to become legalistic. A church which has addictive sin has lots of little laws. Why? It's a smokescreen to hide from the fact that it's nice and shiny on the outside, but inside it's a mess. Can you hear what I'm saying? Jesus spoke a lot about this, right? What did he say? You people who, who you have your cup and you strain out a gnat, there's a little tiny bug in there. I'll get that out. And then you swallow a camel. You have this horrible addictive sin. Can you picture that? The whole camel going down. You've got this horrible addictive sin and you're saying, oh, look at those people. They're horrible. They've got this problem. Or he said it another way, another just as crazy a way. You try and, there's a little, little bit of dirt in someone's eye and you're trying to take it out because you, you don't want them not to see properly and you've got a log. Imagine six foot railway sleeper coming out your eye. Okay? What I'm saying is this. When people have addictive sin, they always point to the small problems of others to smokescreen from the fact that their problem is their sin. Can you see that? And that's what Jesus went into when he turned the tables over in the temple. What do we need? We need a washing and a forgiveness of sins that comes from him. Has that been clear? Can you see how, how indwelling sin leads to legalism? Because basically what I'm saying is, I've got these problems, but the best thing for me to feel better about them is to point to Shelley and say, she's got other problems that are bigger or worse. And are going to, do you understand what we do? That's how we do it. What do we need? We need a washing that we don't deserve. We've never earned. It's come from Jesus, who lowered himself to serve us. That's the character of God when we didn't deserve it and he gave up his life and we need to receive his robes because when we look down and when we get religious about others, what we do is we, we, we hide and we protect ourselves from the real heart issue which is our sin which needs to be dealt with. Do you get what I'm saying? We have to look to him and when you live by faith in Jesus... Then you can pick up your religious temple and chuck it into the sea where it belongs. With all its hypocrisy. And you can live as children of God. Relying on him and most importantly, living in an intimate relationship with him through Jesus Christ. 